HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is presented by Forever Cheese. Learn more at forevercheese.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome abalone farmer Devin Spencer. In today's episode, we'll talk to Devin about sustainable aquaculture, breeding abalone, and we'll hear Devin's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia was inspired by Santa Barbara. Hard to resist the natural beauty, verdant mountains which drop quickly into the sea along miles of breathtaking coastline. In calling Santa Barbara home, Julia described it as having towering eucalyptus trees that smelled sweet and spicy. And she quipped that because the continental shelf drops down so fast here, the fish selection is now immense. Although I think it probably always was, but that's how Julia (laughs) observed it. And as she notes, the beauty also provides a natural environment for growing and raising some pretty great stuff, whether crops like grapes for wine, strawberries, or grass-fed cattle, or sea urchin scooped fresh from the Pacific's cold waters. As someone who valued good food and understanding where it comes from, this all fed Julia's appreciation for Santa Barbara. Our goal with the 2023 Taste of Santa Barbara presented in collaboration with the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience, is to shine a spotlight on the ingenuity of Santa Barbara County's growers and makers who are leveraging and preserving the natural beauty. 
One feature of the Taste of Santa Barbara is local farm and winery tours, so you can learn firsthand how our food and drink are made. This year, we got to visit an abalone farm just north of Santa Barbara proper, one of a scant few in the entire United States. Someone who shares our love of Santa Barbara's natural bounty is Devin Spencer. Devin is the hatchery and production director at the Cultured Abalone Farm. Devin and her team raise California red abalone, which they sell to restaurants and adventurous home cooks. Devin started her career in aquaculture after earning a master's in environmental science and management at UCSB. Her now deep knowledge of cultivating abalone was learned on the job at the Cultured Abalone Farm. Devin's responsibilities cover managing the growth and well-being of more than 1 million red abalone and extend to sharing her expertise with partners throughout California who work to restore and expand populations of white abalone in the wild. She joins us today to tell us all about abalone and her commitment to sustainable aquaculture. Welcome to the podcast, Evan. Hi, thanks, Todd. I'm really excited to be here. We're delighted to have you and to talk about all things abalone, which I was like vaguely aware of, but obviously learned a lot more about after visiting the farm. So we're excited to share that with our listeners. And it feels like we really should start with the basics, since I don't think most people have abalone on their dinner table, um, except maybe if they live around Santa Barbara. So tell us just a bit, what is abalone and where is it most commonly eaten or what cultures most commonly eat it? So abalone is a marine mollusk, and I actually had no idea what it was either until I started working at the abalone farm. Um, I grew up in Colorado, and abalone was definitely not on our dinner table. So it was uh, a new a new animal to take care of for me. Um, but like I was saying, they're a marine mollusk. They are, um, despite popular belief, a single-shelled organism. So unlike a bivalve, a mussel, or a clam, or an oyster, they only have one shell. They're kind of shaped like an ear. They have these little pores that go up the upper left-hand side that are open. That's where they breathe, um, spawn, and defecate from. And then um, ours grow, we grow ours to about three and a quarter inches, but red abalone are the largest uh, abalone species in the world. So they can get up to about 11 inches in size. And they live um, everywhere from the inner tidal all the way down to about 130 feet of depth, depending on the different species um, of abalone. And they, they're they found all over the world, but are they kind of a Pacific Rim creature? Because they're only, they're saltwater only, right? They don't live in freshwater, or do they? I believe they're only saltwater. They are found um, all over the world particularly Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. Um, There's some in China, Korea, Japan. And then I've actually seen abalone from the Azores and a few from like Bali area. So there are different different, um, species, obviously. And it's very interesting based on if they're growing in warm or cold water. All the ones that I've seen in warmer water are much smaller than the abalone you find in the colder Uh, waters like South Africa and California. And uh, this may be a little beyond your expertise, but just peripherally, there are 
kind of certain cultures that it's more common, or at least so I found that 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 people eat abalone. Do 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 you want to speak to that a little bit, just in broad terms? Yeah, absolutely. China is a huge consumer of abalone. Um, it is seen as a food of celebration. I believe that there they mostly eat it dried and then they rehydrate it. Um, it's a huge industry in that in that area. And it also can be um, a huge problem. A lot of abalone is poached out of South Africa. Um, it's kind of a, a something I really enjoy uh, reading about. I've read quite a few books on poached abalone um, coming out of South Africa and other parts of the world. But yes, it is very much a product for or product consumed in Asian cultures, and then um, obviously in New Zealand and Australia, because it is a pretty pretty prominent aquaculture product there as well. And then California, it is kind of a specialty to um, the central coast, northern coast area. It's not found um, really on any other coast in the United States. And so we are kind of um, privy to this really special product, food product that not a lot of people get to interact with. Now, before we talk about the food part, I also thought it's helpful because some people might kind of understand it, that the shells are actually used. And in fact, in some ways, in some Western cultures, they might be, some people might be more familiar or not expecting that, for example, my understanding is like actually a majority of mother of pearl is actually from abalone shells. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. The inside of the abalone shell is this beautiful iridescent um, material. And it's actually really interesting. The inside of the abalone shell and the outside of the abalone shell are made of the same calcium carbonate chemical. But the difference is that um, the inside, the structure of that uh, molecule is structured differently than the outside. And so it makes a very different uh, coloration and like the way the shell looks is very, very different. So it's rough and like bumpy on the outside and very smooth and iridescent on the inside. Yeah. And I think that was something that, especially when you see and handle them, you really see that compared to, I guess, maybe the other sources of mother of pearl, which you would assume they, they come from an oyster or, um, is, is I think not accurate. Like they might use that, but the abalones are bigger and kind of have these spectacular things. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I'm not sure where other mother of pearl is typically sourced from, but I'm pretty confident that there's a lot that come from abalone. Um, and the abalone shells, I keep talking about the different species. I really love the difference in all of the species that are found worldwide. Um, but a lot of mother of pearl that you see that that, that is really like iridescent blue that often comes from um, the species raised in New Zealand called the Powa. It's very, very blue and iridescent, whereas the red abalone has a much um, to much more toned down coloration, and it's a little bit more pink and like pearly colored. It's, it's really cool, the difference in coloration that, that the different animals have. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. So I mean, you answered my question, which is there are differences in that coloration depending on, do you want to just, I mean, I think there's a, a wide range, but there's kind of a smaller range of the most commonly found abalone, but how many is it? It's like certainly more than two. 
So in the state of California, there are seven different species of abalone. Um, they're all named after colors for the most part, which is a little misleading because they're not necessarily um, identified with those particular colors. Uh, but yes, there are seven different species and they all have different shell shapes, different attributes um, that make them identifiable. And do you want to, uh, before we get into eating them, I think, you know, you mentioned about their valves yeah. and stuff, but then also their gastropods, yeah. right? Do you want to talk about what that means? So they're, they're mollusks. I, I honestly don't have a great understanding of all of the uh, scientific terminology that goes along with their classification, but they are, a, they have a foot. And so unlike a bivalve, like a clam or a mussel, where you're eating the stomach, you are actually here with an abalone eating the muscle that is attaching to the shell and attaching to rocks rather than eating like the, the gut content or the stomach content. Um, so once again, kind of tying the food and the animal together. It, no, exactly. That's what I wanted to do. So thank you. And and which also means they, while they don't walk around a lot, they can move in a different way than a bivalve, you know? They can like yes. move with deliberate deliberation. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, bivalves typically attach themselves to a substrate, whereas the abalone is quite mobile. And if you flip, um, we have our abalone on these bathroom tiles that are cut in half into little triangles. They really like to be under the shaded areas. So when you flip those tiles over, they move very, very quickly um, on their own fruition back to the other side where it's shaded. So yes, they um, shock people quite often when they come visit to see how quickly the abalone are capable of moving. But but while they're capable of moving, their natural state is to like kind of be at rest and stay in one place? Or is that a misunderstanding? Yeah, their natural state is to stay in one place. They'll move around to grab seaweed, um, but they prefer it comes to them. Well, let's talk about that now. So, what what is all involved? Because that's one of your big jobs is 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 breeding and and uh, raising healthy abalone. So, what's involved in farming red abalone, and how long does the whole process take to get them ready for sale as food? Yeah, absolutely. So, as you were saying, I am the hatchery and production manager. So my job is to create abalone and then get them to a size that they can be sold at. Um, we go all the way from our brood stock through point of sale. So we spawn all of our abalone. We're not depending on any wild stock um, to supply, you know, animals to grow out. I have males and females um, in separate buckets. They spawn. There's something called broadcast spawners, which means they push a millions of gametes up into the water column. And then those gametes hopefully meet in the water column, create little baby abalone, um, which eventually they swim around in the water column for a long period of time, about seven days. Um, and then they decide to settle. And Within about three days of becoming live abalone or larvae, they um, look like little land snails. They have a cute little shell. They crawl around on their foot. Um, and they are the size of the smallest, smallest mark you can make with your sharpest pencil. So I get about three million of those guys um, into our hatchery tanks. And then I just wait and I hope 
that they're still there and that they're growing big because they're really impossible to see. And at about two months, I start to see them. Um, they're somewhere around one millimeter. And then they keep growing throughout um, the next three to five years. And I sort them um, all by hand every about six months by size. And then by the time they're about three years for the fastest growers and around five years for the slightly slower growers, they have reached a size of three and a quarter inches. Um, those are typically about four abalone in a pound. And then we sell those abalone to restaurants, home chefs, um, that kind of thing. And do you want to uh, talk about the structure of the farm? Because it wasn't what I was expecting. I was thinking more about like farmed fish that's usually in a body of water. But you guys have a quite unique structure, which I think I understood is also not necessarily the way everybody who does farm abalone does it. Do you want to talk about how how you're kind of positioned on the coast, but on land? Yeah, absolutely. So we are an onshore aquaculture farm, meaning that we are farming in tanks rather than in the ocean. We pump our water from about a thousand meters offshore at a depth of about 40 feet. Um, that keeps our water coming in at a cooler temperature because we're below the thermocline. Um, that's just like the break where the water temperature stays cooler that surface water gets warm with sun um, but under the thermocline the water stays cooler so the abalone like to be between about 52 and 55 degrees fahrenheit and then we pump that water uphill to these giant head tanks um, i don't know how many gallons they are but we pump about 23 million gallons of water a day 365 days a year and then those head tanks are on the highest point of our farm, and we distribute the water to all of our tanks via gravity. Um, all of our water is, it's just natural seawater. We're not adding anything to it. We're not chilling it. We're not um, filtering it. It's just raw seawater. So we're at the whim of whatever nature gives us. And then all of our abalone, um, depending on the size of the abalone, they go from tanks that are about 500 gallons, um, which are smaller, about 12 foot long pieces of PVC that have been cut in half. And then um, those abalone as they grow go into these big tanks. They kind of look like giant concrete bathtubs that hold 1,000 gallons of water and about 300 pounds of abalone. And what do you feed them? <laughs> we feed our abalone seaweed. Um, only seaweed that we can harvest on or just off the coast of Santa Barbara. And then we also feed them some red seaweeds that we grow on the farm. So it is really, it's part of our ethos um, as a company to produce abalone in the way that you would harvest them naturally. So we want them to only eat things that they would um, consume if they were in the wild, if they were received from a wild caught fishery. So yeah, my interpretation of that is you're really replicating the natural environment, but moving it onto land. So you have a, a lot more control of, of kind of what's going on in that environment. Is that a good, or do you feel like, no, you don't really have that much control? Like why not just do it in, in the ocean because it's just too technically difficult. 
Yeah, that's a good question. It is definitely much easier to farm onshore than offshore. Um, you're not dealing with a boat. You're not dealing with pulling cages up and down. There is an abalone farm in Monterey. Um, it's under the pier, and they have these huge suspended um, cages that they drop down in the ocean. And there's a lot of, you know, pulling these really, really heavy cages up and down. Um, one of our girls went and worked there. It's really tough to uh, manage all of that weight, like pulling that weight up and down through the water column rather than it just kind of being at your level. Um, and the ocean is really hard. The ocean is unpredictable. Some days you can't get out. Um, the wind is unpredictable. It's They can predict it. They model it. but. It, being on shore takes a lot of that um, variation from the ocean out of the process. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, I, I wanted to ask, because uh, we haven't covered this, but, it, but it's obviously an important question that I know you're prepared to address, but like why farm them versus just harvest them naturally from the ocean? Yeah, that's also a great question. So um, abalone have a long history of being harvested in the state of California. I'm not going to give you a full history lesson because I'm not super certain on the dates, but in the 1800s, um, there was a big commercial abalone fishery where people were harvesting abalone from the wild. Um, and it was, it was one of those, just take everything you can. The ocean is plentiful. It will regenerate kind of mindsets. Um, that commercial fishery, closed in the 1990s, they were realizing that these abalone weren't coming back. They weren't reproducing. There weren't juvenile abalone out there. And then finally in 2017, the recreational um, abalone fishery completely closed as well. So the reason we farm them is because it is illegal to harvest them from the wild. They are protected um, and they are not, you cannot harvest them at all. So are they considered endangered or not? Or it's not that severe yet, but they're protected because they realize that they would, we would lose them if, if we didn't start restrictions. So not all the abalone are technically endangered. They're not listed on the endangered species list. Um, the white abalone, which we do have quite a bit of involvement with, was uh, one of the, or I believe it was the first marine mollusk, the first mollusk to be listed on the Endangered Species Act. Um, so it just depends on the species. But yes, some of them are listed as endangered species and some of them are are in critical condition. So would a diver necessarily find red abalone in the wild in the Pacific off the coast of California now and it's just illegal to take them or or they're really almost gone except for what's farmed? So I can't speak from experience. I actually worked as a research diver for two and a half years, diving every day, five times a day out there on the Channel Islands and in the Santa Barbara Channel, and I never saw an abalone. Um, but I hear that they're out there, and I hear a lot of people, and there's a lot of buzz around um, this idea that the abalone are coming back and they're repopulating the reefs. So I think they're they're coming back. I think these restrictions on the fisheries have significantly um, have helped significantly, but there is still 
um, a moratorium on harvesting them. Well, that that's great to know. I mean, I think that just further underscores the importance of what you're doing beyond just the commercial nature of it and the food production, but in terms of the 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 natural environment. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with more on sustainable aquaculture with abalone farmer Devin Spencer. Stay with us. Forever Cheese, a leading importer of cheese and specialty food, has sourced exceptional products from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia for 25 years. Offering a wide selection of artisan cheese, charcuterie, nuts, crackers, preserves, and more, their products are sold in stores nationwide. Forever Cheese seeks out the best of the Mediterranean and focuses on sharing stories from their family of producers— Each product has a unique story, and their goal is to celebrate each one. From drunken goat to genuine Fulvi Pecorino Romano, Mostarda to Mitica Marcona almonds, and Duya to Jamon Iberico, Forever Cheese is proud to offer products they love from people they believe in. Their passion, quality, and range are unmatched. Learn more at forevercheese.com and look for their products in a grocery store, restaurant, or specialty food shop near you. Welcome back. We're talking to Devin Spencer, hatchery and production director at the Cultured Abalone Farm in Santa Barbara. So, Devin, I just wanted to pick up on what we were kind of just talking about is also I think it's always helpful at a very high level um, because we're not a science show (laughs) is talk about how how the abalone kind of fit into the overall ocean ecosystem of like what what natural predators did they have or not have? And are they like one of those animals that has a lot of uh, benefit to the natural environment or they're just, nobody knows what their purpose is? Yeah, I I don't have a lot of knowledge on this. Um, I focus a lot more on, on growing abalone than uh, how they act in the wild, unfortunately. But they are, um, they're important to the marine ecosystem, just like all all of the different organisms uh, have a place. They are foragers, so they kind of eat all the scraps um, of algae that come their way. They're natural predators. Um, A big one are octopus. And then obviously, I would say the largest predator of the abalone in the past was the humans. Um, But they're pretty hardy little animals. They like to crawl under rocks and in crevices, and then they clamp down on those and they have a hard shell um, covering them. So they're pretty pretty good at protecting themselves. Um, the octopus are, are a pretty successful predator because they can actually bore into the shell of the abalone and um, consume it that way. Wow. Well, that it feels like we need a separate episode on octopus because that's so <laughs> fascinating. Because you, if you look at it, hopefully people can Google what an abalone looks like. It does not look like the easiest thing for an octopus to eat. So um, actually, that's something we didn't touch upon earlier that I think is helpful too. Like abalone are quite ancient, right? They've been around, I mean, documented quite far back in history, right? Yeah, I think they've been around for a very long time. Um, the Natural History Museum here in Santa Barbara has a really fascinating collection of um, abalone shells from all over the world, and I think all, you know, many different time era, like er- periods of time as well. 
Right. Like going back to the ice age, like really, really far back. Yeah. I'm not sure, but I am sure uh, they probably are very old animals. So let's switch to um, the farm itself. And we kind of touched upon this already, but I, I wanted to hear more about it because I think it's quite interesting that in addition to the the breeding and sale of the red abalone, the culture abalone farm and you in particular are involved in some of the wider efforts to promote the conservation of the other aquatic animals like the white abalone. Do you want to talk a little bit about what how you guys are participating in that? Yeah. So we work with the White Abalone Restoration Consortium. Um, it's based out of Bodega Bay Marine Lab. And right now, um, I kind of serve as a uh, person for everyone to bounce their ideas off of, ask questions about animal husbandry. And then I often um, receive juvenile white abalone or larval white abalone um, that don't have a place to settle at Bodega Marine Lab or the other partners across California. And then um, I raise those guys until they're about 25 millimeters in length. Uh, and then they get outplanted in super secret spots along the California coast to um, repopulate those areas with white abalone. And so is part of the idea that scientists know these creatures are endangered and necessary, but they actually are in some ways putting them back into the aquatic ecosystem because they just think they should be there and and don't know the like long-term repercussions if we let them all go. So in some ways it is all experimental. It's like, let's try this and see what the result is. Yeah. So it is in its early phases still. Um, they are trying new ways to um, put the abalone in the in the water and have them survive. There are predators, you know, that try to eat abalone, and when they're really tiny and you put them in the water, they're more vulnerable to those predators. Um, but they've been quite successful. I don't know the exact numbers, but they've put out a lot of white abalone, and the the program is growing in success in terms of spawning. Um, for a long time, they were just having a hard time actually getting the abalone to reproduce. They don't reproduce uh, quite as readily as the red abalone do. Um, so it's it's a process and it's been an adventure. I've been a part of it for about three years now, I think, since 2018. Sorry, that's longer than three years. 2019. I know. Um, well, the pandemic has made like counting years like <laughs> impossible. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I've been I've been a part of the program for a while now, and it's really cool to watch it grow and to go from um, just trying to get larvae to this year we had tons of larvae produced, and um, Bodega Marine Labs' culturing space is completely full, which is super exciting. And I'm really excited to get those babies once they're um, a little bit larger and ready to ready to just be fed kelp all day. So it kind of sounds like they're using the success you guys have had as red abalone breeders to try to like have kind of you're applying that knowledge to the white abalone, but as a non-commercial sort of natural preservation project, which they come to you at a certain stage and then go back into the to the wild. Yep. So we're just, we grow them out after they're about three millimeters in size. They come to us to just grow and grow and grow because it is hard for 
um, Bodega Marine Lab to procure, procure um, kelp up there. It's a little bit colder. They don't have very much macrocystis. Um, and we have, you know, extensive amounts of macrocystis and red seaweed that we can feed those abalone. So we're just putting on size, basically. We just want them to get bigger. Um, also, their space is not very big. So there's a point where their tanks just can't handle the size of the abalone. And they're eating the same food that the red abalone are fed? They are, yes. Um, they're actually very funny. Abalone have very particular tastes. <laughs> the red abalone really like the red seaweeds. I don't know if that's um, a coincidence or <laughs> or not. Uh, but the white abalone really like the kelp. If you put red seaweed in there and there's kelp, they will go straight for the kelp. They won't eat the red seaweed. So I'm always fighting with them trying to you know, get a little variety in their diet. And they, <laughs> they just want to eat the kelp. They get mad at me when I feed them red seaweed, but they will eat it eventually. You've got like a lot of picky children. I do. They're very particular. Oh, that must be amazing to discover. So I wanted to ask you about the purple sea urchin too, because I think that's really interesting. And some of our listeners, or, or if you've spent time in Santa Barbara, heard about um, S- Stephanie Mutz, the diver and the kind of uni um, which is the Japanese word for sea urchin. And, um, but I think it's interesting what you guys are doing with the pe- purple sea urchin. So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the purple sea urchins are a native um, species to Santa Barbara. It's common for people to say, oh, they're invasive. They're not invasive. They're native. Um, they're just a species that has become out of balance Um, for a lot of reasons, which I won't go into because they're very, in some ways, controversial. Um, You know, people blaming everything every which way. Um, But they, so they're out of balance and there's a lot of them. And there's something called an urchin baron. So these urchins, they're living on the ocean floor and they just consume all of the seaweed. And then there's nothing. It's just rocks and urchins. And that's really um, unbalancing to the rest of the ecosystem. Animals like abalone then don't have food to survive. So what we've done is we've started to partner with fishermen, um, which some people think is crazy. Aquaculture and fishing shouldn't go together. But um, we have a really nice partnership with some urchin divers. um, And we have them go down. They harvest purple urchins which are completely void of roe, and that's what you would be eating. Um, That's what you have when you have the iconic red sea urchin from Santa Barbara. Um, So they're void of roe. They're kind of, they're called zombie urchins. So they're just kind of in this state of uh, surviving, but not thriving by any means. And then we put them in our tanks. Um, We have a few extras that we're not using for abalone. And then we feed them kelp. Um, Also a little bit just like leftovers from what we didn't feed the abalone. And they develop beautiful plump gonads, which is what what the uni is. Um, That really beautiful, bright, golden um, little lobes when you open a sea urchin. And so they sit for about 10 weeks in those tanks getting fed. And they are a really incredible product because um, while the red urchins 
you have really good urchin divers and they're really good at picking good urchins, but sometimes it's just a crapshoot and you don't know if you're going to get uni inside of that urchin. Um, because we are in control of the feed and we're in control of um, what's happening to those urchins, about nine out of ten of nine out of ten of those urchins have incredible row inside of them. Um, and it's a different flavor and a different a uh, little bit of a te- different texture than the red urchin. Now, is the purple purpose of the purple sea urchin project to essentially develop the uni for sale or is it also part of the rebalancing or is it the idea that you're taking a species that is um overpopulated in the wild and 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 just remind us like sort of the purpose of the project is it conservation or is it commercial or it's a combination of the two the purpose is a combination of the two um, obviously, we would love to be able to say we helped rebalance the sea urchins in the ocean. Um, but at the same time, we are trying to develop a commercial product that is viable um, and that is sought after by chefs and, and people who are um, uni connoisseurs. So it's sort of like a commercial proposition for something that isn't naturally in a state that can be consumed, but seems oh out of balance in nature and by removing it you're the hope is you're rebalancing it so that the resources to the population is in sync and at the same time getting a benefit of creating a a food product that otherwise would not be there because they're starving in the ocean sounds like a beautiful summary of it to me cool no i think it's it's such a great story and fascinating although now i feel like we need a santa barbara culinary experience against where you get to sample like red sea urchin against purple and like you know you really have to do them side by side probably to be able to have a good sense of the the differences yeah that would be fun do a little an abalone or sorry a urchin and wine tasting flight Yes, because we can't do a white versus red abalone tasting right that, that's not allowed <laughs> no <laughs> no so just before we go to break, I wanted to bring the food aspect into it a little bit more. And I was really curious, like, did Julia Child have an abalone recipe? And I could not find one. It's not super commonly um, consumed in France. But actually, I did read that there is one small, I think, off the coast of Brittany where they do have abalone naturally, although I'm suspecting they're the much smaller ones. And in fact, in French, it's called or mer or or mo for more than one of them and i did find an explanation in some of the really historic of how you make it which is very similar but i thought um we should hear from the source of how you guys recommend preparing and eating abalone Uh, so we have a couple of um, common ways that we prepare it the easiest way is just a little garlic and butter straight on the foot of the abalone and then Um, putting it shell side down on a really hot grill. Um, And that just, that's the easiest way to cook it. You don't have to do any pounding. You don't have to do any um, like shucking of the abalone. It just slides right out of the shell and then you can thinly slice it, put a little lemon on it and you're good to go. Uh, So that's the most common way that we do it. My personal favorite is um, abalone is a little bit of a a workout to get to. Um, So shocking it from the shell and removing um, its viscera. And then you have to pound it really, really paper thin. They get really hard when you remove them from the shell, like little hockey pucks. So you have to pound them flat um, until they're kind of like veal scallopini in a way. 
and then um, breaded in flour and seasoned panko and then pan seared really, really hot with a little bit of garlic butter. I mean, you can't go wrong if you put garlic butter on anything, really. Well, and it seems like that preparation is actually kind of similar to how escargot are prepared. And they have a relationship to those kind of since they're a sea snail, right? By like yes, non-scientific, yes. yeah. And then I also noticed, I think, on the Instagram feed for the abalone farm, you often highlight different chefs that you have relationships with or things you find. Do you want to call out any of the innovative abalone dishes or actually a lot of the chefs are just preparing it in the, these more common ways that you guys are already familiar with? Yeah, the chefs always amaze me with what they do. Um, they always are doing something different. I've seen uh, abalone steamed in sake and then um, like braised for a very long time. I haven't had it that way. I've also had a, I guess you could call it a ceviche. It was cut into very, very, very small pieces and then marinated in like a lime and I don't know what else, um, but it was really, really delicious. So you can eat it raw, um, but most of the time people eat it cooked. There, there are so many preparations. Um, it's really common in soups and such in Asia, whereas here we tend to eat it a little more um, fresh. But that's how we Californians like to do it, with lots of vegetables from our farmers. And I think you guys were calling it mermaid style. Is that when you cook it on the grill in the shell? Yes, that's when we cook it in the in the shell on the grill. Absolutely. Because are, are mermaids known for eating abalone out of the shell? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they should be. Um, yeah, you know, gotta have some funny little marketing things in there. I think it's who wouldn't want to eat something that mermaids eat and eat it. I mean, I think it's great. All right, we're going to take a break, and uh, when we come back, we'll hear Devin's Julia moment. The Julia Child, A Recipe for Life interactive exhibition is on now at the Henry Ford Museum of American Innovation in Dearborn, Michigan. It runs all summer until just after Labor Day. You can join Julia and Paul's meal at La Corone or step into Julia's shoes behind the camera on the set of The French Chef. For tickets and more information, visit thehenryford.org and click on current events. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Devin, what's your Julia moment? So I actually had never really thought about Julia Child until I was a part of The Taste of Santa Barbara. Um, and started listening to this podcast. And that clip that you play about Julia trying to flip whatever she's flipping and completely kind of missing, but not worrying about it, taking it in stride. Um, that's kind of how I manage all of my hatchery technicians. I 
think that aquaculture should be a learning experience. And the only way that you'll ever understand um, what the abalone need or how to do things correctly is by making mistakes. And so we, we always, you know, we, we make mistakes. We make a lot of mistakes. Um, you might be moving a big tank in and accidentally hit a pipe and water goes everywhere. And those are things that you could get upset about, but just, you know, figuring out how to manage the situation and uh, quickly turning that water off and using each mistake as a learning moment or a teaching moment um, is how I like to run the business and how I like to um, manage my people. And so I think I embody Julia in taking light, um, like being light about mistakes that are happening and using them to our advantage rather than being upset about them. Well, I love that you've taken Julia's learning and advice in the kitchen of how to learn to cook and applied it to animal husbandry. I think Julia would, would would love that application, and I can just see her asking you a million questions about how you how you uh, you know are essentially watching a million animals have sex and get <laughs> into <laughs> into things, and it, especially at such microscopic levels i think having having visited and people can see this on the videos on the website when you're it it, it there's a lot of going on faith right because you can't without a microscope see most of what's going on until they're actually um uh bred right yeah no definitely the stage from um that day seven when they get put into tanks up to three months is my least favorite part of raising abalone because I am running on faith. I'm running on my skills and uh, my knowledge that I've developed over the years, hoping that they're there and they're growing and just, you know, praying that they're going to be a lot of them when I can see them. Going on faith. Well, thank you, Devin, so much for joining us and, and sharing all your knowledge with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you're eager to now try some abalone, you can order it directly from cultureabalone.com. And as I said, you can watch videos there about what the farm looks like, um, as well as how they breed the abalone. And you can also check out at cultured abalone on Instagram. Video clips from The French Chef continue to arrive weekly at Julia Child on Facebook. And please follow at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. I'm at T. Shulkin on Instagram. You can find Julia Child Channel streaming The French Chef and other Julia shows on Pluto TV, Plex, Freevee, and now even Tubi, as well as on the PBS Living and PBS Documentary channels on Amazon. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network today, it's Liam Warner. Our theme song is New French Warm by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.